Well, keep on trucking for Jesus. That's, that's going to be our message title. No, I'm only kidding. It should be our message title for today. Um, but I want to start off with a story. Um, I, think it was, I think it was April 1st, 2020, 2005. Um, Julie and I uh, embarked on a new adventure. Um, and much like today, uh, it involved some snow. Um, we moved out to uh, Medina, Ohio. And um, anybody ever moved in the snow? I mean, that's, that's a fun thing, right? It's also a fun thing to, to move to a place that, that does snow um, in, on April 1st. We were moving from uh, South Jersey. And uh, for those of you guys who are not familiar with the Philadelphia, South Jersey area, uh, the Midwest and up here, like, it's just, it's different. Like, I, I swear... Like, if it's not 32 degrees down in Philly or South Jersey, it's not snowing. Um, I feel like it could be 30 degrees, and it's still going to, to rain down there sometimes. But up here, it's like, it seems like it's 40 degrees, and it's snowing. And I'm like, how does this happen? Like, why? Like, why is, why is the snow falling? But anyway, um, we moved our stuff over there and um, embarking on a new ministry. Um, and it was just Julie and I at that point. And, um, you know... Uh, when you uh, candidate at a church, um, for those of you who have never done this before, but maybe even just interviewed for a, for a job, um, the company or the church usually tries to put their, their best foot forward, you know, um, and they make a lot of uh, promises and statements because they want to seem attractive to a potential employee or candidate. And um, Julie and I, honestly, we, we thought we were walking into a, a dream situation, you know. I mean, we, we heard everything. Oh, our, our, our youth are so spiritually minded. And, you know, we, we've, got, we've got this program and that program. And, and we're going to do this for you. And we're going to do that for you. And, and it was like, wow, this is, this is going to be a great experience. You know, we're, we're really, really excited about moving to Ohio. Um, about, beginning about three months in, um, for those of you who know me, uh, I don't tend to be the most organized or, or punctual person. Um, these are, these are my notes here, okay? Uh, there is just chaos all over the page. There's arrows, um, I hope I can get through this, but, um, I thrive in a certain amount of, of chaos. Um, I don't know what it is, I don't know if God had given me the spiritual gift of, chaos um, in, in a sense, but um, I do. I thrive in chaos. So, uh, so we get out there, and we're there for, for about three months, and um, I'm not that organized, and it was a Friday. I came in a little bit late, and the senior pastor was already there, um, much like our church here. Stephen is always here. He always beats me uh, into, the, into the office, but um, I came in a little bit late, and it was the first time I was late. I kind of snuck into my office shut the door quietly, you know, and just kind of started opening my Bible and getting ready for, uh, for, for Sunday school, for, for Sunday morning, you know, putting the, putting the finishing touches on. And I wasn't there five minutes, and the door opens, and the senior pastor brings in a letter. He puts it on my desk, and he says, read this and come talk to me. He walks out. Now, again, I, I don't know, I, I do have a naturally like 
there's something in me that always thinks that people are mad at me, okay? Um, us outgoing people, we tend to be the most insecure people in the world. And my first thought was, man, this guy is so mad that I was late that he couldn't even talk to me. Like, he wrote it down in a letter and handed it to me. And he's been sitting here writing this letter so upset that I was late. And I read the letter. And the letter was not what I was expecting. The letter was this senior pastor confessing to a number of, of sins that he had committed. Um, there were non-disqualifying sins, okay? Uh, Stephen and I, we, we try to be above reproach in all things. Our deacons try to be above reproach in all things. But we are not perfect individuals, Okay, every one of us in this room still sins. Okay, we still, we still do. This side of glory, we still wrestle with the flesh versus the spirit. There were some things in here in this letter that weren't just um, disqualifying sins, but probably criminal offenses. Um, and I went into his office and I said, listen, I, I need to pray about this before I, I talk with you. So I went in and I talked to him and he said, what do you think I should do? And I said, listen, if, if all of this is true, what you've written, I said, in my mind, you've, you've clearly disqualified yourself from, from ministry. Now, remember, this is 2005, April. I'm 24 years old. This guy's like 50, 55 years old. I, I really, I've struggled with this my entire ministry. I'm finally getting to the point, especially in this church, where there's a good portion of you that I'm older than, which is, which is great. But it's hard when you're a younger person to have to call out sin like that in an older person's life. So we had a deacon's meeting. Um, we actually called an emergency deacon's meeting, and we met that Saturday. And uh, this pastor had gone home. He had talked with his wife. And I told him to bring the letter back. Well, he read the letter in front of our elder board. And um, the letter was different than the one that he had given me. And it didn't sit right with me. And I remember just sitting there, listening to this letter and praying and praying. What was I going to do? So finally, at the at the end of the letter, and after they had discussed it for a while, I decided again, well, I guess I'm, I'm all in here. And I said, uh, Pastor, that's a little bit different than the letter you read to me. It was much more toned down and, and everything. And he said, well, my wife read the letter. And then I thought to myself, oh, wow, I, I read the letter before his wife read the letter. I was like, that's, that's, a, little, that's a little crazy uh, in my mind. But... Um, I said, I, I just need to figure out what's true. Like, what's true and, and what's not true? What's you just beating yourself up and what is actually in your heart? This started a process of uh, three months of just insanity. Um, there's no other way to put it. Um, we had people in our church saying, I don't care what our pastor did. Uh, you haven't seen the ministry that he's had in my life. We had other people saying, no, this is my church. This is always going to be my church, and no matter what happens, I'm staying here. Um, we had fights. We had, not fist fights, but just arguments. It could have been fist fights. Um, arguments, everything. But again, I had my dream job. 
right? I, I was like, I was sold on this. This was going to be great. This was going to be awesome. And we moved from Jersey to Ohio, and three months in, it's a mess. And this is where I am. So I start calling back here. I made a ton of calls back to CSU, BBC at the time. I remember talking to Mel Walker. I remember talking to Joe Schlegel. Um, I remember calling these guys and saying, listen, what should I do? And I'm going to tell you what 99% of those guys told me to do. They told me to run. (laughs) They said, run. You're in trouble. You're in big trouble. You got sold a bill of goods and... You need to go. But I prayed. And I didn't feel like I needed to go. Um, We went from a church of about 300 down to a church of about 100. Um, At the last meeting, uh, the pastor stood up, and I'm being very careful not to mention any names, but the pastor stood up, uh, confessed to a bunch of things, and then said something silly. He said, If only someone had told me these things were wrong. And um, it's hard uh, when you're on a leadership team uh, when things don't necessarily go your way, uh, the way that you think they should go. And I I don't know what the wisdom was in this, but uh, the pastor was standing here and the elders and I were all sitting up here. And I just remember dropping my head and just being like, oh my goodness. And it was one of those surreal moments where the service ended, and we were going to have a confidence vote the next week. He wanted a confidence vote um, if he could still be the pastor. I remember walking out, and it was like slow motion. Like, everybody wants to talk to you, and I just, I couldn't talk to anyone. Like, I just went. I went into my office again, shut my door, and started praying. Again, five minutes of praying. The door opens. The pastor comes in. He sits down. I think that went really well. He says, I think, I think we're going to get the vote. I think we're going to do this. I think we're going to do that. And I just said, stop. I said, you sounded like a fool out there. I said, if only someone had told me these things were wrong. I said, there's, there's ten commandments. I said, you broke at least three or four of them. I said, you know, it's, it's, it's right there in black and white twice. I said, you know, um, you broke at least three of them. And he got up, and he started to walk out my door, and he said, if I leave, are you going to leave? And I said, I don't know. And he said, if I stay, are you going to stay? And I said, after all this, I don't know if I can. That Sunday, he got up and resigned. We didn't have a confidence vote. We didn't have anything. But that started me on a path of two and a half years of being the only pastor at this church, 24, 25 years old. We would get another pastor in for 18 months, a great man of God, knew the word of God, preached the word of God. Uh, I don't know that he ever got a fair shake from the congregation. Um, It might have been a personality thing, but he left after 18 months, and there I was again, the only pastor of this church, my dream job, the one I got sold. I learned something in those five years. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter uh, 2, verse 9. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9. Remember, we've been going through Nehemiah here. The first week we saw that God hears the prayers of his faithful servant, 
that Nehemiah is a faithful servant, that, that he prays to God. We, we see this all throughout the book of Nehemiah, that, that at the first sign of trouble or, or adversary or adversity or, or whatever, he turns to God. Last week, we saw that when our passion is the will of God, he grants us the desires of our heart. And in Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 9 here, we're going to build on those two principles here. So let's start reading. Uh, Verse 9, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letter. Now the king had sent me officers, uh, sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So Nehemiah starts off on his journey here. Remember, he asked the king, he said, King, my, my city, the city that I love is, is in ruins. It's in ashes. Uh, the walls are burned down. The gates are burned down. Uh, the, where where my, my, my forefathers are buried. Um, it's, it's in ashes. It's in ruin. And the king says, what do you want? What are you asking? What do you need? How long will you be gone? And Nehemiah is given everything. Now, there is a guy before this who's not given this. His name is Ezra. Um, Ezra doesn't get an army. He doesn't get horsemen. He doesn't get officers of the army. He gets a few other priests and some, some other, other Jewish officials that, that go with him. But it's interesting here that Nehemiah gets a, almost a royal guard. Uh, or at least a military guard, in order to, to get across the land. Verse 10, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So remember, guys, we're talking about a story here, and I, I said last week, characters are important. Okay, Characters are important in a story. So we meet two new characters here. Sanballat, the Horonite. Who the heck is Sanballat and who the heck names their kid Sanballat, right? No, um, Sanballat. Who is he? Well, from the best that we can, we can figure, he's probably a governor in Samaria. In a region that's real close to Jerusalem and Judea. He is an official. He's a high-ranking official. He is the governor. And he's not happy. Then we have this guy... Tobiah, the Ammonite servant. How many of you guys have an NIV? How many of you are reading out of an NIV here? Okay, no problem. You guys can read out of the NIV. Every other, every other, uh, every other uh, translation that I've read so far uses the word servant here. But your NIV uses the word official, right? A, 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 an official. What do we know about this guy, Tobiah? Well, we know that in chapter 13, somebody's going to reserve a special place for him in the temple. We know that by his name, he's Jewish. Tobiah means Yahweh is great. But he's a servant here. Some say official, some say servant. I looked up this word, nine times out of ten in the Old Testament, actually probably 99 times out of 100, the word servant is used and not official. You know who this guy Tobiah is? 
He's a Jew that has bought in to the system of the world. He is a Jew that has bought into Sanballat's system. And he's aligned himself with Sanballat rather than aligning himself with the people of God. With his heritage. He is a traitor. He is going to be a thorn in people's side. But he's related. He's related to people who are still in Jerusalem. He's got inside connections. He's got influence. But he's playing for the wrong team. And it says when they heard that Nehemiah was on his way, when they heard that someone was coming, they were greatly upset. Why were they upset? Because someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Now guys, this is what you need to understand. When Jerusalem is laid bare here, when the walls are torn down, when, when the fire comes, when everything happens, this is, this is part of what Ezra is, is um, addressing here. These Jews were intermarrying with the nations around them, with people from Samaria. And they were losing their Jewish heritage, history, but most important, they were losing their, their love of God and their love of God's word. And that's why Ezra is sent. Ezra is sent to teach the word of God, to bring the people back to the word of God, to bring them back to true worship and sacrifice. So he addresses all of this intermarrying that's going on. And in all of this, we have these Jews that have moved away. Remember the story of Lot in the Bible? Where Abraham and Lot are, are looking over the, over the, over the, the well-watered plains of the Jordan. And, and Abraham looks at Lot and he says, listen, you go your way, I'll go my way. And guess what? I'll give you first choice. And Lot looks and he says, wow, that land over there looks really good. He says, I choose that way. Abraham says, great, I'll go the other way. Well, over there are two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And then pretty soon we don't see Lot just in the well-watered plains. We see him moving closer, pitching his tent towards that, those cities. And then we find him in the midst of the city here. But we have Abraham on the other side. And Abraham says, listen, God has already told me that I'm going to be blessed. It doesn't matter if that land looks better. God's going to bless me. See Tobiah here? Tobiah sees that the grass is greener on the other side. He says, you know what? I'm going to pitch my tent over here. I'm going to choose this side. This side's more comfortable but they're upset because someone's looking after the welfare of the Jewish people. Strange. Verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I roll, uh, I rode. So Nehemiah, Nehemiah rolls into town, 
with this entourage, right? He's got army people, he's got horses, he's got everything, and he just comes right into Jerusalem. You think people notice? Yeah, they're going to notice. I mean, could you imagine today if we had... Um, I don't know, the, you know, Navy guys like come in and like all of a sudden like they just took up a section of our church and they sat down. Everybody would be like, oh, what's, what's going on? You know, I guess their ship came in. I don't, I don't know. Like they're all, they're all sitting here together. I mean, it would cause us to start talking, to start wondering what was going on. Nehemiah does this for three days. He doesn't tell anybody. Doesn't tell anybody what's going on. I guarantee you those people in Jerusalem are like, what's going on? Who's doing this? There's all kinds of rumors going around. The people around the city are wondering, and they're like, who is this guy? What is he doing here? He says, then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. Julie laughed as I was, as I was writing, because she was sitting next to me as I was writing. I wrote the, I wrote the words here. <laughs> Stealth mode. And then I wrote, Hebrew ninja. You know, I mean, they were, they were Hebrew ninjas, right? They're like, listen, we're going out in the middle of the night. Nobody's going to see us. I and just a few people. And we're going we're gonna to do something here. He makes it a point. He says, I didn't take a bunch of animals with me. I didn't want to make a lot of noise. The only animal I took was the one on which I rode. That's it. We were quiet. We went in the middle of the night so we wouldn't draw a crowd. But he says something interesting in verse 12. Beginning in the second second sentence there, I and a few men with me, the third sentence, and I told no one what God had put in my heart. Guys, again, this just speaks to the character of Nehemiah. Nehemiah knows he's not super smart. He knows he's not specially gifted or talented in some way. He knows that his abilities, this is above his abilities. He knows that God is the one directing his footsteps and directing his heart. How does he know that? Because he is in fellowship with him. We talked about this both of the previous weeks, how much Nehemiah is praying, how much he's in communion with God. God had placed this in his heart. It's not Nehemiah saying, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to be great. We're going to build the wall. We're going to, you know, ah. He's saying, listen, God put this in my heart. Remember last week, our big idea. When our passion is God's will, he will grant us the desires of our heart. Guys, our big idea today is in the face of adversity, even in the face of adversity, God accomplishes his will. Even in the face of adversity, God accomplishes his will. Now, I can't take credit for the big idea this week. Um, One of the things I love at our church is being a part of our youth ministry. I know I'm old. Okay, I know I'm old. Um, I'm 41 years old. I'm not your typical youth pastor or whatever, but I love youth ministry. And I've had the privilege the past several months to um, 
to take our kids through some, some Bible study techniques, some principles of Bible study, um, and things like that. And we broke down this passage on Wednesday night. And I said, hey guys, what is the transformational intent? What is the writer trying to communicate to us? In telling this story, what is the big idea? And Ryan spoke up, and Ryan gave us a great summary of our passage. He said, she said, Nehemiah uh, comes to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. I said, yeah, that's a great summary. That's a great summary of what we got going on. And then Kaki Boykin raised her hand. And Kaki said, even in the face of adversity, God accomplishes his will. And you ever do one of those slow turns as you're like writing? Like, I just turned and I was like, like I looked at her and I was like, I was about to be like, blessed are you, Kaki, Barthead, and Sherry. No, uh, you know, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, uh, you know, and I think it was Betsy or my wife, somebody, somebody just uttered like, that sounds good. I was like, that sounds better than good. I said, that sounds like Pastor Stephen. I said, we're writing that down. I said, I said, we're writing that down. I said, that's a good one. Allie spoke up after that. And she said something to the effect of, God chooses to use us to accomplish his will. You guys, remember Nehemiah praying? What's one of the things Nehemiah prays? And what's, what's one of the things he does? He confesses his sin. He says, listen, we're sinful people. We're in captivity because of the sin we committed. That's why we're here. God, you warned us in your word that if, if we were unfaithful, that you would scatter us. But if we returned, if we were faithful, you would return us. See, Nehemiah knows that he's sinful. Nehemiah knows that the people of God are sinful. But God is using sinful people to accomplish his will. Verse 13 Again, he repeats, I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. All the junior hires laughed when I said that before. The dung gate. Um, and I, expect, I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animals, for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up by night by the valley um, and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. Guys, we see two principles here. Two principles that we can live our life by. See, what does Nehemiah do? Now, Nehemiah goes out at night and he's already heard. He's heard that the walls are destroyed by fire. He's heard all of these things. It's something completely different to see it. And what Nehemiah sees is that Jerusalem's a dumpster fire. I mean, it's, it's terrible. This is a big project. This is a big job. See, Nehemiah got a promotion. He's going to be the governor of this dumpster fire, right? That sounds like a great job. Um, this job does not come with a corner office. 
Okay? He was already he already had a corner office. He was living in the palace. And he says, I'm going to trade that in for Jerusalem, for a city lying in ruins. Many of us in this room can remember 9-11. Many of us can. I remember that morning. I was in Southern California. I remember being woken up. Something's happening. We have to get to this building. And I remember hearing of what had happened. Um, We didn't have a TV there at the building we were at. I was at a a different Bible college. I was only there for a short time. Um, But I remember running um, a mile and a half to, uh, to a shopping center where I knew there were televisions. And I got there just in time to see the second plane Hit the, hit the building. And I remember seeing it. I remember hearing the noise of the people that were around me when it happened. If you remember that morning, there were a lot of conflicting stories. You know, oh, this was a great, it was an accident. You know, how could this have happened? You know, maybe the, maybe the pilot was, was this and that. But then when that second plane hit, we knew this was something completely different. See, it was one thing to hear about it. It was another thing to actually see it. Jerusalem was in bad shape and God sent a cupbearer. Not a builder, not a carpenter, not a mason, not someone who is skilled at the position God sent a cupbearer. You know, God uses the weak and foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Jesus, when he calls his disciples, does he call the smartest people? No, he doesn't. Does he call the ones that everyone will expect? No, he doesn't. Does he spend his time with the people that everyone expects him to spend his time with? No, he doesn't. He chooses the weak and the foolish to confound the wise. Nehemiah goes out and he looks around. And he realizes something. This is our first principle here. My God is bigger than my problems. My God is bigger than my problems. See, when I was in Ohio, there was a good three or four days that I could not see past the problems. I couldn't see past the problems. I was getting advice to run, to leave. And guess what? That probably would have been the easier thing to do. Um, From a logic standpoint, it was probably the best thing for me to do. But I stayed. I stayed for another five years. And I will tell you guys, not by my own striving, not by my own intelligence, not by anything of my doing, did we succeed. But God did some amazing things. I often refer to it as the five best years of my life. 
They were the five scariest years of my life. I was not ready to be the only pastor of a church. I will tell you that. I was not ready, not prepared. I was not ready to handle a three-way church split. I just remember hanging on for dear life and praying and crying and trying to be faithful through adversity after adversity. We were hanging on white knuckle, Julie and I, the whole way. And it was the five best years of my life. It was one of those situations where you're just like, what's next, Lord? Like, what are you going to throw at us? It can't get any worse. And guess what? It just kept getting worse. But it was awesome. Nehemiah has that spirit here. He looks around, he sees everything is destroyed, and he says, you know what? My God is bigger than my problems. My God is bigger than my problems. Verse 16. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not told the Jews, the priests, or the nobles, or the officials, or the rest of, uh, and the rest of those who, uh, who would do the work. So listen, at the beginning of verse 16, it says, the officials did not know. And then he talks about the Jews and other officials. The first officials that he's talking about, guess who he's talking about? Sanballat, Tobiah, and this guy Geshem. Those three guys are there when Nehemiah gets back after inspecting the wall. They're standing there in the crowd with all of these Jews who are about to, as as God's word says, who are about to do the work. Nehemiah is presented with another potential problem. How does he communicate what God's vision is? How does he communicate what God's vision is? Now, no one in Scripture ever had a problem presenting the words of God, right? Nobody ever did. I mean, we went through Jonah, right? Jonah Jonah had a big problem with presenting the words of God, right? I mean, God said, hey, go this way. And Nehemiah went, or I'm sorry, Jonah went that way. Went the exact opposite direction. Moses, Moses was like, yes, Lord. Use me, for I am a man of eloquent speech. No, he says, I'm not a man of eloquent speech. Choose someone else. You got the wrong guy. Not Nehemiah, though. Nehemiah's not scared. Because Nehemiah has a relationship with God. Nehemiah has been praying and planning for months for this moment. And God has placed a plan in his heart. Remember, guys, the the point not to take away from this is that Nehemiah is so smart and he's so organized and he's ready with a plan. Yes, he was ready with a plan, but that plan was put there in his heart by God. Not an audible voice. Not an audible voice. But by studying the word, by praying, God granted him the desires of his heart. Why? Because Nehemiah's passion was the will of God. In the face of adversity, God will accomplish his will. Nehemiah looks and he says, oh, it's a big problem. It's a big issue. But guess what? My God is bigger. 
So what does Nehemiah do? How does he present the problem? Verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Nehemiah does, does a couple of things here. He, he represents the problem. Okay, when you're talking to some, someone who's in chaos or, or is going through a rough time, a good thing to do is to restate the issues so that you understand them. See, why does Nehemiah go out at night? Because he wants to understand. He wants to see what he's up against. He wants the people to know that he observed what the problem is. And in his mind, there's two problems. He restates the obvious. He says, hey, Jews, people here, I know that your walls are broken down. I know that your gates are destroyed by fire. And I know that you're being made fun of. I know that people are putting you down. I know that people are oppressing you, whether physically, emotionally, whatever. He says, I know. I know all of these things. But then number two, he provides a solution. And notice what he says in this solution. Halfway through, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Who did Nehemiah come with? Horses, officials, himself. Does Nehemiah say, Hey, let me build the wall for you. No. He says, let us rebuild the wall. Guys, guess what? You know, I came here 11 years ago. 11 years ago. And we had some big projects to tackle. And I say we had some big projects to tackle. And guess what? God allowed us to tackle those projects. Pastor Stephen mentioned yesterday that we are mentioned today that we had a work day yesterday. I was not there. I wasn't there. I was preparing my message. I was doing this. But the stories I heard of how you banded together and took on projects it was awesome. I mean, the stories even before that of, of painting and cleaning up and getting ready for the carpet to come. Guys, we have a church that bands together. See, part of our job as pastors here, Stephen and I, is that we are to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And this is what Nehemiah does here. He says, listen, I'm not doing it for you. We're going to do it together. Now remember, not everyone in the crowd is where Nehemiah is. Okay? Nehemiah is excited. Nehemiah has seen how God worked. Nehemiah has seen how he approached the king and asked for all these things. And he was given the desires of his heart. The Jewish people standing there, they're like, I don't know. There's some guy who was a cupbearer his whole life. He's probably got baby hands like Billy Mulligan. Um, he's got baby hands, you know. He's never seen a day of, of work in, in his whole life maybe. You know, he's, he's lived a privileged lifestyle. What's he going to do? How's he going to help? He 
Here's one of the key things. What's Nehemiah's motivation in saying this? Is Nehemiah's motivation that that he's going to get a better position? That he's going to be honored? That he's going to be respected? That he's going to be heard? We learned last week he's getting a new house out of the deal, right? Gets a new house. Is that his motivation? Maybe his motivation is to be on his own. Out from the king's palace. Able to make some decisions. Get some real stuff done. Be able to make a difference. No, we learn in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 10, that we just read. His interest was the welfare of the people of God. We learn in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 3, it was to honor the heritage of God's people for his forefathers' graves, that they were not being desecrated. And then we learn in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11, that his true motivation was so that the name of God may be feared. See, Nehemiah's motivation is that God may be glorified through his actions. That he may be used by God. The question is, what is our motivation? Just in life. How many times have we been the guy who says, I just want a better position? I just want to be heard. I just want a bigger house. I just want a nicer car. I just want, I want, I want. Do you want the will of God? Do you want to be used? As, uh, as we heard yesterday um, or, or Friday in our, in our uh, funeral service here for, for Sarah, do you want God to be the author of your story? Or do you want Ben to be the author of his story? Do you want Jordan to be the author of his story? Do you want Julie to be the author of her story? Who's the author of your story? See, Nehemiah realizes that the will of God, principle two, the will of God and his glory needs to be his motivation. That's our second principle. The will of God... And his glory needs to be our motivation. Our God is bigger than our problems. The will of God and his glory needs to be the motivation. So Nehemiah says, hey, we're going to build this wall. We're going to do it together. We're going to band together. How many of you guys had geometry in school already? How many of you guys like geometry? I did. I liked geometry. It made sense to me, okay? I'm I'm a visual learner. I like seeing triangles. I like seeing squares. I like shapes. I should have stayed in kindergarten. Um, you know, I, I, love, I love those things. You know what I hated about geometry? There's only one thing I hated about geometry. Who knows what I hated? It? it began with a P. Oh, I hated proofs. Hated them. I could come up with the answer. I could be like, yep, that's the right answer. Why? Because I can see it. That was my answer of the proof. I didn't want to have to write everything out. I was like, nope, that's the answer. That's what Nehemiah does for the people here. Nehemiah provides the proof here. Verse 18, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good 
and of the words the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. See, Nehemiah provides them two proofs. He says, listen, proof number one, the good hand of God is on me. You know what? Nehemiah could have ended there. But how many people would have followed at just that? That's a question for us. When things don't necessarily make sense, but the first answer is the good hand of God is upon me. How many of us would just follow with that? But he says, and the words the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Guys, we have a shift here, okay? We are shifting from the people of God being depressed, being, uh, you know, put down and oppressed, to now being excited and motivated by something. And it's done by a very short speech. Two things. God is with us. The king said we could do it. And they say, let us rise up and build. There's an interesting uh, dichotomy here for you guys who like uh, theology, you know, and deeper theological thoughts. I don't think it's a mistake that Nehemiah mentions the hand of God and then mentions the people of Israel strengthening their hands. Guys, this is a great picture of how the sovereignty of God works with our own will. God is the one who placed the plan in Nehemiah's heart. God is the one whose hand was upon Nehemiah. God, we will learn at the end of this, is the one who's going to cause them to prosper. But the people are willing to do the work, which is equally important. You see, you got Sanballat here, who's definitely not a Jew. Okay? At best, maybe he's a half-Jew, at best, because of the intermarrying that was going on. Then you have Tobiah, who's a Jew, but he's on the wrong side. And then you have Geshem, this Arab, who is definitely not Jewish in any way, shape, or form. And these are the bad guys. Okay, These are the guys that are the, the adversity. These are the ones who are making fun. And then on this side, you have Nehemiah. And Nehemiah's like, the good hand of God is upon me. I'm ready to go. He's our good guy. But then in the middle, you've got these Jews. And to be honest with you, they're fragile and fickle. And they could go either way. They're like, man, if, I'm, if I want to be safe and secure right now, maybe I lean this way. You know what? If I do believe that the king and the good hand of God is upon Nehemiah, maybe I go this way. And when Nehemiah is done speaking, this fickle group of people here are swayed over to this side and they're like, yeah, we're ready to go. We're ready to do it. Verse 19 now. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant um, and Geshem the Arab heard this, they jeered. And they despised us, saying, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? What are they doing? 
They're trying to sway the crowd. They're trying to make them nervous. They're trying to get them upset. They're fickle and fragile, and they're like, hey, you guys are going to be in trouble. Wait till I tell dad. Wait till dad comes home. You guys have heard that one before? That's basically what they're saying. Wait till the king hears. Then you're going to be in trouble. Nehemiah just said the words of the king. Nehemiah shows up with the king's guard. He shows up with horses. He shows up with with people who are are of the Persian army. Their argument doesn't even make sense. Principle number three here is the world will oppose the will of God. You need to prepare for it. You need to be ready for it. You do. It's going to happen. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of helping Elizabeth uh, Phillips purchase a car again. Many of you heard uh, at, the, at the funeral, uh, Cindy did a great job reading a letter from Elizabeth, and she had mentioned in there, and I just smiled, you know, Mom, I, I totaled my car again. Um, you know, Elizabeth was in a, in a difficult spot, and I just happened to be in Ohio, and I went with her. And I was like, hey, you know, I'll help you buy the car. I've sold cars before. I'll help you buy the car. And um, we walked into the first place. I didn't like the salesperson. Um, For those of you who are in sales someday, the most important thing is that somebody likes you. Okay? If they they like you, they just might buy from you. If they don't like you, there's a good chance they're not going to buy from you. I didn't like this guy. Like, he just wasn't excited. He wasn't happy about selling. It was just kind of a job to him. I was like, forget this guy. So we left. We go to the second one, and the guy comes back, and he's, he's very, uh, you know, energetic, enthusiastic, and he's like, listen, this is the best deal we can do, and he puts it down or whatever. And the other guy, I couldn't believe he did this. He let me walk with the, with the sheet that had all the numbers on it, and the deal wasn't as good. And I turned to him, and I said, listen, I'd already spoken to Elizabeth. I said, listen, if he can match this deal, are we good? She said, yeah. I said, okay. I said, listen, I don't like to do it this way. I said, because it's, it's really not fun. Like, it takes all the fun out of it for me. I just handed him the sheet, and I said, hey, can you, can you match this deal? And he looks at it, and he goes, oh, I don't know. You know, he gives me the line, and then he, he's like, I'll see what my manager can do. And he goes back, and he comes back, and boom, he matches the deal. And I turn to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth says, can we talk for a second? And I said, sure. So he leaves, and I said, what's, what's wrong? And she goes, he just lied to us. And I said, yeah, he did. And she, she, was, she was upset with this. She was frustrated with this. And I said, I'm sorry, Elizabeth. I said, I should have walked you through this. This was going to happen today, okay? We were going to get lied to. We walked into a car dealership. Mentally, I just assume that that's what's going, but I hadn't prepared Elizabeth for that. The world's going to do what the world's going to do. You know, we get hung up so much on political things. You know, Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever. I've said this from the pulpit before. I don't care if you're a Republican. I don't care if you're a Democrat. I don't care if the, you know, if the man in office is of a specific party. If he doesn't know the Lord, I don't expect him to do things that, the Lord, that would be honoring to the Lord. I don't expect it. I can't expect it. When Nehemiah hears these guys, it's not a shock to him. It's not a shock at all. 
You see, the issue that Nehemiah is really dealing with is that the world is going to seek to dis, seek disunity in the people of God. The world is going to seek disunity in the people of God. The world is going to try to get you to stumble. Satan is going to try to get you to stumble. Your heart is going to get you to stumble. You've got all these things working against you. Nehemiah knows all of this. Listen to how Nehemiah responds. Then I replied to them, verse 20, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Does Nehemiah address the king situation here at all? Does he talk about the king? Read it again. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. Wait a minute, no, no, Nehemiah, they were talking about the king. They were talking about rebelling against the king. See, Nehemiah doesn't even justify it. What he says is, I'm going over the king's head. It doesn't matter what the king does. The king can come in here and march on Jerusalem if he wants to. If this is what God wants us to do, nobody's going to stop us. Guys, to have that faith. So many times in our life, when things seem hard, we're like, ah, man, I guess that's not what God wanted me to do. You know what? Nehemiah was doing exactly what God wanted him to do. And things were hard. All these people are upset with me, though. That must not be what God wanted me to do. You know what? That's the exact opposite of what the Bible says. David in Psalms writes, he says, listen, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the evil plot a vain thing? Jesus would say a similar thing. He says, listen, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. We need to expect this. But we don't justify stupid claims. We don't. There's no point. There's no point arguing with them. See, these people over here are using cunning and logic and fear in order to sway the people. Nehemiah over here says, I have something better. I have something better than the world's logic. I have something better than the fear of man. I have the fear of God. And you're going to see it. He's going to cause us to prosper. Guys, if we lived like this, what if we lived like this? What if when the going got tough, the tough got praying? What if when the going got tough, the tough got fasting? What if when the going got tough, when we faced adversity, we said, God, what is your will? Not what's the best thing for me. What's the most comfortable thing for me? What's the, what's the easiest thing for me? That's very me-focused. See, Nehemiah is God-focused. Laser-focused on God. Guys, in the face of adversity, God will accomplish his will. That will for your life, though, might be difficult. It might be hard. You may have to walk a difficult and hard road, but can you choose joy in the face of this adversity? See, we all sin. We're all going to face adversity. 
Sometimes that adversity will be self-inflicted. Nehemiah is in a self-inflicted adversity here. The people of God are in captivity because they have sinned. This is a self-inflicted adversity that they're going through. And they need a solution. Guys, all of us in this room have a problem. We have a self-inflicted problem. And the only solution to that is a God solution. See, Nehemiah ends here and he says two things. He says, there are outsiders and there are insiders. There are those who will participate and partake in the joy that is serving the Lord in the fact that he will prosper us. And then there's you guys who are on the outside. One of them being a Jew. At least one of them being a Jew. Guys, you see, we all had a problem. The problem of sin. That we all sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news of the whole Bible is that God has a plan. God has a plan for Nehemiah, and God has a plan for you. See, the problem you have is sin. And as Nehemiah did, he confessed that sin. The Bible is very clear in the book of Romans that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, we will be saved. That God has raised him from the dead. That there's nothing on our own that we can do. See, the sad story of Nehemiah is that these fickle Jews, as we mentioned before, they're going to go back. And they're going to fall back into sin. The Holy Spirit wasn't given yet. We just sung about the Holy Spirit earlier this morning. They don't have it. They don't have that sealing work. See, the great news that we have is that Jesus has come to live a sinless life, die for our sins, and conquer death and sin. These Jews don't have that. They don't have that that ability. They don't have it. It hasn't been given yet. But what they do have is faith. They have faith in God. And that faith in God is what's, going to, is what's going to help them to accomplish the will of God. And someday be entered into glory. We read in Hebrews chapter 11 that by faith there are individuals who will be saved in the Old Testament. These Jews have a choice to make. Will they be faithful? Or will they be faithless? Guys, the choice that you have today, will you trust in Jesus? Is he enough for you? You know what? If you trust in Jesus, you're going to face adversity. You're going to face people who make fun of you. You're going to face people who put you down. They're going to think you're dumb, you're stupid, whatever. Does it matter? In the grand scheme of things, do Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, do they, do they matter? No. Does, king, does the king matter? No, he doesn't. The king of kings matters. The Lord matters. And that's Nehemiah's focus. God, my, guys, my encouragement to you today, don't buy into the lies of this world. Don't buy into fear. In the face of adversity, the will of God is accomplished. 
Your life may be tough. It may be hard here. You may go through difficult things. Trust in the Lord. If you're here today and you haven't accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, you're on the fence here. You're just like these Jews who are standing here. And on one side you have God and on the other side you have safety in the world. Are you going to be an insider? Or are you going to be an outsider? Make today the day. You say, you know what? In the face of adversity, I'm going to trust God.